we're going through the book of Mark, uh, thinking about what does it look like to follow along this pathway of discipleship. And so if you've been around for the past few weeks, uh, you've seen us progress through the introduction uh, of Jesus uh, and his forerunner, John the Baptist. You've seen Jesus uh, start to call disciples to him. And then just last week, we started to see the ministry of Jesus uh, play out. Mark is very focused on moving quickly and giving us this overview of Jesus' life, teaching, and work along the lines of teaching us what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus and what it means for us to follow Jesus. And last week we saw a key theme in Mark begin, and that theme was that part of Jesus' ministry was that he faced opposition. Uh, Last week we saw that opposition mostly come from uh, demons, although it also uh, came from uh, his fame growing and uh, just inconveniences of the ministry that he was trying to carry out. But this week we will see uh, another key form of opposition come into the life and work of Jesus Christ, and that is the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, if you grew up in church, uh, you probably know who they are because we like to we get, like to demonize the Pharisees. And so uh, I thought I'd just show you in my research this week um, some legit pictures of the Pharisees that I found. And by research, I mean Googling this morning because I just thought we should have some pictures. So you got a uh, standard Pharisee is angry white guy, super inaccurate, but also very angry. Uh, they always have things on their heads, scarfs, that's important. These guys are arguing over like the sizes of their potatoes or rolls, or I don't know what is happening down in the corner. But Jesus is like, no, I have the bread of life. They're like, we have rolls too. Um, that's what I think is going on there. Um, that'll be later in Mark, the classic sermon on the roll, uh, as it's called. Wow. No more of those jokes. Uh, so we, we, we see the Pharisees in Scripture, and, and the Pharisees are a, a way that Mark calls out this idea of religious and systematic opposition to the teachings and the persons of Jesus. And so for me, uh, uh, reading through the Bible, or especially when I was taught the Bible as a child, uh, man, I was taught that like the Pharisees were the opposite of what I was as a believer, right? The Pharisees were against Jesus. The Pharisees were religious, but I had this legitimate relationship with Jesus, and I wasn't like those doubting, arguing, opposing Jesus Pharisees. Um, I think this is an unfair way to read the Bible. Um, I think more often than not that you and I have a lot in common with the Pharisees. You and I have a lot of things when we look at our life and relationship with Jesus that reminds us of what we're going to see in the Bible uh, of how the Pharisees interact with Christ, the oppositions that they bring up to him, and the way that they behave. You see, the Pharisees, they wanted to be right before God. They wanted to be close to God. They wanted to be moral, good, and righteous. And these are things that many of us would say we aspire to. We want to be good. We want God to look upon us kindly. We want to be close to God. We want to be moral, good, seen as righteous. But what Jesus' ideas did is that they challenged the Pharisees' ideas of how to attain these things. And likely, as we look through the book of Mark, and particularly these uh, five different scenes that we'll dig into today, it's going to challenge our ideas of what it means to be good and righteous. Because in each of us lies this opposition to the things that Jesus came to teach. We struggle with parts of it that seem unbelievable. We struggle with the challenges to our righteousness, this radical reorienting of our priorities, the way that he messes with our comfortable religious practices. 
And what Jesus is going to show here in these passages is that the kingdom of God or his rule and reign, the rule and reign of God being manifested in Jesus challenges our perceptions of what it means to interact with God. So what I want to do here is let's pray together and then we're going to jump into the book of Mark. We're going to be all, we're going to work through all of chapter 2, the first couple of verses of chapter 3. Let's pray together. God, we pray this morning for your help and your kindness to be on us. God, we pray as we, we read your word, Lord, uh, that we would see it as true. God, that we wouldn't see this just as a fairy tale or, or a story, but we would see this, Lord, as your authoritative word. God, as a word that has the, uh, the uh, privilege and right to speak into our lives. God, as we interact with and encounter Jesus this morning, Lord, would you do a miracle and let it change us? God, whether we have never decided, uh, Lord, that we want to follow Christ, to trust in his sacrifice for our sins, God, to believe in the new life, the easy yoke offered in his resurrection, God, or whether we have proclaimed to follow Christ for a long time, uh, would you help us to walk in the way of Jesus and would you uh, uh, quench our, our desire to oppose you? And we pray, amen. All right, uh, Mark chapter 2, uh, we'll start right at verse 1 and work here through uh, verse 5. I'm sorry, no, uh, we're going to do verse 1, uh, yep, through 5, I was right. I'm in like the wrong book of the Bible, I'm in Ruth, that's why, I'm like I'm totally confused. My, my ribbon was in the wrong place, my sticker's in the right place, okay? This is going to be a great morning. It says, when he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he, had go he was at home. So many people gathered together uh, that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him, bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Sack to Capernaum here. This is where he was uh, just a few paragraphs earlier in chapter 1. Uh, and these verses indicate that he's in, at home in some way. Uh, this could just mean that he was at a home. This could mean that he was in his home. Uh, kind of common uh, or, or the most uh, uh, wide view amongst uh, scholars of the Bible is that he was probably at Peter's house, which was the house in which he was residing. Uh, hard to say whether or not Jesus had a, a physical home of some sort that he like owned or, or lived in. He was from Nazareth, we know that, but, but Capernaum seems to be the home base for most of Jesus' ministry as an adult, and it seems that he was, at least when he was in Capernaum, uh, living and residing at Peter's house. And so uh, this scene happens here that, that people in Capernaum hear that Jesus is back, and they remember what Jesus had been doing, that he had been teaching with authority, and that he had this ability to cast out demons and to heal. And so when people hear that Jesus is back in town, they begin to flock to this house in which Jesus is living. And I just want you to imagine for a second uh, this scene in your living room for a minute, okay? Like, I don't know, my house gets full um, pretty frequently. Like, we hold, host a city group um, every week where we come together and kind of live as family, and sometimes it's like, oh man, do we have too many people? Um, never has there been a time in my house where people couldn't fit in the door, right? Now, I'm an extrovert, so I'm like, 
cheering for that day, right? Uh, but there has never been a time where my house was so full, I'm not even sure um, if houses are built to be that full, where there were so many people around that not even someone could get in the doorway. Um, as we see the picture of what was happening here at Peter and Jesus's uh, condo, is that, that there wasn't even enough room for people to start to approach the exterior of the home to force themselves in. And so we get this scene where these men uh, are carrying their friend, their friend who is paralyzed, their friend that they must dearly love because of the amount of effort that they're putting into this action. They want to come to Jesus to have Jesus heal this man. Because they've heard about who Jesus is. They've heard of the power and the authority that Jesus wields. And they believe that if they can get in Jesus' presence, that he will look on their buddy kindly and heal him. And so they go to great lengths to carry this man uh, to this home where Jesus is, to fight their way through the crowds, to decide that they can't get in the front door. And so the decision that they make is to climb onto the roof. And this is probably like some sort of clay, uh, stone, dirt home. And they, they start to carve through the roofs. And I just, I wish Mark would be like, and uh, the Lord saith, uh, Peter, calm down. It's going to be fine. Because if I'm Peter and this is my house, I am ticked, Right? Can you, I, like, if my kids, like, I, well, there's one day in our house where uh, one of my uh, boys, we will leave him unnamed, um, was, was hanging on the door of a sliding glass door and just snapped the handle off. I was livid, right? This cost me $13.75 because I bought the cheapest handle that I could replace it with because that house was on the market. And that's what you do when you're selling your house, right? You don't care anymore. But I was so mad. I can't even imagine if someone was literally digging a hole through my roof because they were like, city group looked extra full this week, but we really wanted tacos, right? Like, this is bonkers. So they tear through the roof because this is the amount uh, that they believe that if they can just get near to Jesus, that their friend will be okay. If they can just get close to him. And, and it says here that, that Jesus saw that they deeply, deeply had faith. So uh, Jesus 5, seeing their faith, seeing the faith of this group, that they went through all of this just to get near to him, just to get in his presence, just because they believed that he could, that he had this power, that he was someone unique and special. He looks on them and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is a bold statement and it causes quite a reaction. We'll see here in verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this and within themselves. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up and took his mat, and he went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. 
Jesus' statement of your sins are forgiven is so wild that just in the hearts of these scribes, uh, scribes and Pharisees are going to be used somewhat interchangeably in this passage as as these uh, religious, uh, educated people who are trying to figure out what's going on with this new teacher teaching with this crazy authority, trying to understand what's going on, uh, that in their hearts first they're confused and that confusion leads to outrage. That they think in their minds, it dwells in their hearts, they whisper amongst themselves, what is going on here? Who can speak in this way? And it's interesting how these are really the first people in this story who come to this conclusion about Jesus, that for him to say that, only God could say something like that. Now, they don't believe that he's God. They say this in opposition to who he is, but the thought in their mind is correct that only God could forgive sins in this way. And so their conclusion is that he's blasphemous. And then this crazy thing happens that scares me half to death. What is it? Jesus hears the words that they're speaking in their minds and their hearts. Okay? Does that scare you? Who's thought some things this week? Raise your hand, okay? Like, close your eyes, raise your hand, no one look around. I've, I've, I've thought some things this week, right? I've, been, I've had some angry moments. This is cathartic. Jesus hears the words in their hearts, and so he speaks into those words and thoughts, being the one who still, in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' life, he allows him to hear the thoughts of these people in opposition to him. And so he speaks out and says this. He says, uh, which is harder to say? He answers them. He says, why why are you frustrated by this? Which is harder to say? Is it harder to say, get up and pick up your mat and walk? Or is it harder to say, your sins are forgiven? Now, that's a confusing question. Uh, that, that's a confusing question because it really has a double answer. Because it, it is harder, in a sense, to say, get up and walk. Because you have to make something miraculous happen to fulfill that, right? Like, for you to say, get up and walk, and for this to happen and prove your power and authority, something amazing has to happen. But in another sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven in the sense that it's easy to say, and, and it doesn't require much proof or physical evidence or a visual sign, but Jesus knows and the Pharisees and scribes know to forgive sins is absolutely impossible for a man. That, that they have a vernacular for like a miracle happening, right? And they've seen Jesus do some miracles. They can deal with this. They, they, they know of miracles in the Old Testament. There have been other prophets who have come and, and kind of wielded the power of God and been able to do miraculous things, but no one has ever just proclaimed over someone in his own authority, as a man, your sins are forgiven. So, so in a sense, it's easier to say, but it's impossible to do. And so Jesus does this thing. He says, so because I need you to know that I have this authority to forgive sins, I'll I'll do the physical thing that seems hard to prove. And he speaks to this man. He says, stand up, take your mat, and walk. And the man is miraculously healed. Now, when you read this story, if you've been at all like in, in, in Christian culture, you've heard the story of Jesus before, maybe you know that like, yeah, like Jesus came to forgive sins. But I think, I think that there's a temptation on our part to treat that a little bit flippantly. Oh yeah, Jesus forgives sins. Of, of course he would say that. 
the, the, the scribe's response that Jesus would come down and claim that he could forgive the sins of a man was wild. They didn't have a vernacular for this. Like, think about how they had been trained to think about sin. They had been trained that the sin was such a grievous thing that the way that they were to uh, deal with, account for, pay for this sin is that your family had to, like, raise the most perfect animal you'd ever raised. You had to go to a temple, and they would um, kill that animal in front of you, and this blood would be placed on an altar to show you the gravity of what it took for God to forgive someone's sins. If someone was found to be with sin, if someone violated uh, just a piece of the Old Testament uh, laws for the community of Israel, they were, they were put out of the community. They were separated from the community. They had to be made clean. They needed to understand that that couldn't exist around God because God was a God that took sin and violations of his commands so seriously. Don't treat this idea that God would forgive you of your sins as just a passe thing to write on your next coffee cup, right? Like, oh, the Lord, the Lord, he forgives, and I'm just happy, and there's flowers. This forgiveness was bold, was earth-shaking, was shattering news, so much so that this is what is going to incite their desire to murder Jesus. They say, he's, he's a blasphemer. There's no crime greater in Israel than to be one who blasphemes, to claim that he was God in this way to forgive sins. And this will set off opposition that will reverberate throughout the rest of the entire book. The forgiveness of sins offered to you in Jesus through his death, through his proclamation that he was God, it is a truth that you cannot just slide past. It is the foundation of everything as believers that we believe. Whether or not Jesus was God, whether or not he had the ability as God to forgive, to make a way to reconcile us to God, to pay for our sins, to offer us the righteousness that we could never obtain, a right standing before God to give us a new life. And so Jesus demonstrates just, just a touch of his power over the physical world in healing this man to try and point their hearts to the truth that he had power way, way beyond this. That his kingdom, his rule and reign wasn't just over the physical world, but it was over the spiritual. Second scene starts in verse 13. As Jesus went out again beside the sea and the whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of uh, Elphus, sitting there by the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. Uh, Jesus here calls another disciple to himself. He calls uh, this man named Levi, and we're told here that Levi was a tax collector. Okay? Uh, to be a tax collector uh, as a Jewish man in this community was literally, the, the phrase they used was, you're a tax trader, right? And some of you have done your turbo tax, and you agree. Others of you are like, I don't know why he was a trader. It's great. I'm getting cash back this year, right? A few years ago, I had to pay, and so I was, like, holding back on filing my taxes, and I kept getting these emails from TurboTax that said, like, your refund is waiting, your wee refund is waiting, your refund is waiting, and I was like, no, it's not. Like, it's just so mad, right? 
Levi was a tax trader. To be a tax trader literally meant that you were ostracized from the entire uh, community of Israelites. You were seen to have aligned yourself with the governing party of the day that was in some way uh, completely opposed to this, this lifestyle of the Jewish people in the ancient Near East. Levi was exiled from his people. He was seen as a sinful man violating his community and placing his own monetary gain over loving and being with his family. His family likely didn't talk to him anymore. He was likely just a scourge in the community. Uh, like something that really I don't know if we experience now. He was an outcast, a traitor. And Jesus calls him to be a disciple. That I don't have to really unpack that for you, do I? That, that he was an outcast from his society. He was completely uh, uh, disowned, likely, by his family. Had, had few friends. And Jesus calls him to be a disciple. And not only that, Jesus goes to his house to share a meal. A sign of... Because when the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. I didn't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Now, now read this and think, were the Pharisees righteous? Well, not really. To be righteous means to be, to be uh, standing before God and, and to be found in right standing before the, the whole weight of all of God's commands. Were the Pharisees righteous? No. Are, are, are you righteous? Would you stand in front of God in front of the weight of all that God has commanded? It, it, do you perfectly reflect the love, actions, and words of God? Of course not. So, so why does he say, I didn't come to call the righteous? And why does he seem to say in that that he didn't come to call the Pharisees? What, what he's saying here is not that the Pharisees are righteous. What he's saying is that the supposed, the assumed, the internal assumption of the Pharisees that they had pleased God and that they were righteous was keeping them from being able to hear the call of Jesus, which was a call towards repentance, walking away from the sin in which they were entrapped and walking back towards a relationship with God. And so he says, I didn't come to call the righteous because the righteous don't think they have any need for me. There is real risk in your life being from Grand Rapids, okay? There, there is real risk. If you grew up in this region, in this culture, if you've been here for a while, there is real risk that, that probably in a real way, you were raised to live in a way that you think is moral, that you were raised to think, you know, I know right from wrong, and I, I stay on the line, and I don't cross it very often. You probably didn't ever, you probably weren't like, I'm sinless, but you thought, well, I'm not sinless, but like, I'm better than those who are sinners, right? Like, at least my sins are in secret, okay, and I'll just flaunt them for the world. There is risks being raised in a culture, in a country, where Christianity for years and years and years has been assumed. Where parts of it have been intertwined in our culture to thinking that we don't need Jesus that much. To assuming our righteousness. Now, there are new forms of this now. Um, our culture now, now flaunts moral superiority. 
as a means of, of commerce, of getting dollars, and a means of power. That morality may look different. That morality might no longer be based in some loose way on Scripture. But we flaunt morality. We like to magnify how righteous, how informed, how with it, how uh, bold in, in the times we are. How, how, how much we love people that are different than us. How we would never be like those abusers and those manipulators. We like to flaunt our righteousness. But what Jesus calls us to is this, that we must all, that we are sinners. That, that, that at our core, we do not perfectly reflect the righteousness of God. That, that, that at our core, we are broken. That, that we have violated the way that God created for us to live and to flourish. And, and Jesus, then we understand that we are the people that he came to call. Listen to what he says to the Pharisees. He doesn't say, I came to call sinners or I came to convict sinners. He says, I came to call sinners. I came to invite them along, to call them to follow me, to invite them to be my disciples. And the example in this passage is Levi. He says, I came to call people like Levi. People who had violated their community. People who were far from God. People who had been selfish, who had put monetary gain and personal pleasure ahead of being near to God and his people. He says, I came to call those kind of people. There is risk that we oppose God because we think we're pretty close to good enough. That we're not in need of much. And Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but came to call sinners. Verse 18. <clears throat> now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine will be lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Now, this question about fasting is brought up to Jesus. Now, what, what is fasting? Well, fasting, uh, put really simply, is denying yourself of something. Usually, uh, we think of food when we think of fasting. Fasting is very popular right now. This is not intermittent fasting so that you can have a hamburger for dinner every night. This is like fasting, fasting uh, for some sort of religious person and deprivation. Uh, this is what fasting was. And what Jesus explains here is that what fasting is about, fasting is about begging and pleading that God would be near to you. Now, now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting for this reason. They were fasting that God would be near to them in some way. John's disciples were fasting, uh, uh, hoping for the coming of the Messiah. The Pharisees were in some way fasting, begging that this would get God's favor to be on them, that he would be near to them. And what Jesus says is if you, if you are fasting that God might come near, if you are fasting for the coming of the kingdom, then there's no need to fast while I'm here. 
Now, this falls right in line with what Jesus' message uh, in the entire book of Mark is centered around, this claim that the kingdom of God has come near, that the Messiah has come, and that he is to proclaim repentance and faith in him, the Messiah who has come to bring the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God himself near in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, look, it would be ridiculous if people fasted at a wedding. And this was commonly uh, known. The weddings were some of the biggest celebrations that went on. He said, you would, you would never fast. You would never be so rude to fast at a wedding. That You would go and you would celebrate and you would be there with the groom and you would celebrate this day, this amazing wedding day. And he says, fasting for my disciples would be like that. He says, my disciples right now, he says, they have no need to fast, to beg that God would become near. And he's trying to indicate fasting in the church because often uh, fast of different kinds are built into Lent. Uh, maybe you are on a, a fast of some sort. Maybe you, you practice this as a child, uh, likely if you grew up part of your Christian expression. And, and fasting can be a rich and good Practice And Jesus seems to say here that there will be fasting that happens when he leaves. I don't uh, miss this part. We can't spend too much time on it. But this is the first time that Jesus predicts that he will be taken away from the disciples. He says that there will be a day when that groom, and he's talking about himself, is removed and the people will fast again. But, but I think uh, our fasting often misses the mark. Um, just in fact, if you were to search like, uh, why, do, why do we fast during Lent, a, a common response is, well, we fast because we want to suffer like Jesus suffered. We fast to align ourselves with the suffering of Jesus. And, and while I think there's some merit to reflecting in this season on the way that Jesus came and suffered, I think that misses the point of what Jesus is saying about fasting here. Um, uh, uh, old uh, uh, a pastor that I know uh, from Chicago said this, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it, his name's Arian Damiani, uh, referencing fasting in the Lenten season. He said this, he said, we are, we are cluttered by so many things that we love. Uh, this idea that, that our souls are often so filled with many good things that we love, and that the problem is that we love these things too much. He says, in fasting, what we're doing is in fasting, we are making room in our cluttered soul for Jesus. By pointing ourselves to the things that we are filling and medicating ourselves with and allowing us to find fulfillment in Jesus. Um, if you are fasting during Lent, do not fast because you think that God wants you to suffer more. Because I think you're missing the point. Fast that you might realize how much God delights in your joy and pleasure in him. That, that, that as, you, as you cast off things that you use to fill your life, to mute uh, the pain that you're feeling, to bring a feeling into your life, as you put these good things for a moment aside, or maybe as you even put aside things that, that are good things that have gone too far and become that, that you might see the sufficiency of Jesus to bring you joy in this life. Remembering that he came to bring the kingdom near. Remembering that there will be a day that will come where we will be with Jesus again. And all of these desires for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, that they will be fulfilled and we will finally be whole and happy. And we will be set apart from all these things that we try and fill that in with. In this life with Jesus, we live in this weird period that we call the already but not yet. 
that we are united with Christ if we believe in him. That we do have this ability to find satisfaction in him, but we still are struggling and our world is still painful and broken. And fasting is a way to point us to the fact that Jesus is our sufficiency and truth. Fasting is a way to remember that only in the coming of Jesus and his kingdom are we made whole and full. All right, fourth and fifth scenes are both about the Sabbath, uh, verse 23. Uh, on the Sabbath, he was going through the grain field, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read about what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Amar the high priest, and he ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." Uh, the scribes and Pharisees in this day, they had taken this stance uh, uh, on the Sabbath that was rigid and restrictive. Uh, the Sabbath was this command to the people of God that they would take a day of the week, the seventh day, the Sabbath, and they would set it aside, and that that would be a day of rest, that they weren't to work on that day, that that day was to be for their restoration, rest, and worship of God. And so the scribes and Pharisees had taken this stance on the Sabbath that was based on fear of being disobedient and not joy in being obedient. This leads to this just ridiculous accusation against Jesus' disciples, which is this, that they are walking through this field and they just grab and gather a little grain, that they might have some grain either just for like an afternoon uh, snack of some Wheaties or whatever, or, or to make bread later in the evening. They're gathering a little bit of this grain, which was permissible for them to do as they passed through this field. And the accusations that the Pharisees make is, look, your disciples are basically harvesting the field, right? And I don't know why Jesus isn't like, no, duh, like, right? Like, there are so many times I think, like, I would have responded in such a snarky way if I was Jesus, which is hilarious in and of itself, right? He, he doesn't respond in this way. He says, hey, you've missed the point. Jesus says, you've missed the point. And he corrects them all under the authority of that line. He says, I am, the, I am the Lord, not only of these things, but I am the God, I am the Son of Man, I am the Lord, even over the Sabbath. I'm the one who has the power and the authority to define what these things are and what they are for. And so there is this key phrase in here that the Sabbath was, not made, the Sabbath was made for man, not the Sabbath not man made for the Sabbath. Jesus corrects the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath, and he points them to this important truth, that the Sabbath was made for the flourishing and the joy of the disciples, the flourishing and the joy of the people of God, not made just as a rigid, rigid rule to oppress his people. Now, this statement is crazy for us as believers, that the law of God, the, the weight of the commands of God, the, the authority of God played out in Scripture was given to you for the flourishing and blessing of humankind, not for the sake of creating limits and laws. This is a hard truth for us because we are prone to either press into law or press into license. That we are just wired in this way, either to build fences and to worry about whether or not God loves us because of our performance, 
or to take utter license to say nothing in this world that we do matters. We are prone to run towards law or license. License says God does not care about what I do, and law says if I don't do this, God will not love me. And Jesus teaches us in this instruction that instead the way of God, the law of God, the authority of God points us not to a life burdened by law, not to a life uh, running, seeking pleasure and license, but instead a life that has been planned for our joy and our flourishing as we follow after the way of Christ, the only one to fulfill the law of God, the one to show us the way to live with joy and flourishing in mind, the one who says that his yoke is easy, his workload is light. Jesus says, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Uh, 3.1. It says, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. And then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And he told the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out. And started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. This is the last straw for the Pharisees. In this sequence of five events, um, from uh, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins of this man, from calling tax collectors and sinners to eat with him, uh, his disciples not fasting, his disciples grabbing some grain, and him proclaiming authority over the Sabbath to this moment where Jesus chooses to exercise his power and heal on the Sabbath day. The second misuse of the Sabbath that the Pharisees accuse Jesus of is that out of this, what happens is that out of this fear of violation of the Sabbath, that it led them not only to accept Jesus' joy in that day of rest in the previous section, but it caused them to avoid doing good. And so Jesus extends his power to heal this man with the withered hand, showing that the Sabbath was not meant to be an oppressive restriction on love, but instead was to be made a day where these things were known fully. What happens to us is if our observance of the truth starts to keep us from loving. This indictment of the Pharisees should, should really strike us because I think we war against it. That we are prone to in our understanding of truth of what is good and right to let our understanding of what is true keep us from loving other people. The Pharisees' desire to keep the law of God wasn't bad. They were commanded to keep the law of God, but the way that they bound themselves to that law, the way that they made worshiping that law more important than the intention of that law leads them to sin. And so just two questions as we close out today. Uh, one, are you using the instruction of Scripture? Are you using the instruction of Scripture, uh, the law of God, as an excuse to let you keep from loving those who are in sin? Now, I'm not advocating 
for a church or a world or a life as a believer where we don't call sin what it is. Because ultimately, as believers, what we are called to see is that when we are in sin, what we are truly doing is we are running against God's way for us to flourish, that we are harming ourselves, that we are not living in the fullness in which he has gifted to us in Christ. We must know what sin is, but in defining sin, what Jesus clearly indicates in these five scenes here is that our goal is not to avoid or stop loving those who are caught in sin or affected by sin. Is your rigid understanding of truth, though it may be good and true, keeping you from loving other people because you refuse to associate with them or out of fear of arbitrary laws built on top of God's truth? Are you avoiding serving and loving? Second, are are you prone to follow just the law of our culture? Uh, universalism, extreme tolerance, uh, worshiping identity and self-care and image so much that you've rejected the teaching of Jesus, that you've walked from the law of God because you're so worried that you might offend other people with these things. Like failing to believe that the ways and the words of Jesus lead to life, that's the sin that truly keeps us from relationship with God. That believing he wasn't God, believing he wasn't the one who got to command and speak into our lives. Are you allowing culture's narrative and the sins of our world, are you allowing fear over offending someone else's sensitivities to keep you from sharing the good news of Jesus that leads to life? We are all prone to let fear, to let misuse of the law, to let our culture uh, create such opposition to Jesus that we forget his words. We are prone to let our, uh, our understandings of our own righteousness, we are prone to let our religious traditions, instead of pointing us towards Jesus, distract us from him. Ultimately, our goal is to not have perfect religious practice. Our goal is not to be so worried about the stain of sin that we don't come in contact with those who are dying and need a breath of life. Our goal instead is to be like Jesus, to be near sinners, to call them to like we were called to follow Jesus, to understand that we were in sin, to show compassion on those who are weary, to feed those who follow us and to love them well, to draw near to Jesus, believing in the extension of his kingdom, his rule and reign into our lives. He calls us to repentance and belief in him. Let's pray together as we close. Lord God, we are so often dealing with hundreds and hundreds of lines in our hearts that oppose you. God, of ways that we think we would do it better or different, ways that we understand your interaction with us differently than you've clearly said it in your word. God, we we are prone to ignore those who are outcasts and to walk away from them, maybe because we fear the way that they sin because it's different than the way we sin, God, or just because it's easy and convenient. God, I pray that you would answer the opposition in our hearts with the truth of who you are. 
And that God, as you have promised to do, as you take those of us who have placed our faith in you, who have trusted in your death to pay for our sins, to give us the righteousness that we could ever earn, to forgive us for all the ways that we avoid your flourishing, God, to give us new life to walk with you, God, as we walk in this life, would you transform us to look more and more like Jesus? God, would you, not make, would you make us not afraid? God, to reach into our culture and to speak what is true, that others might know you and find life in you. May we pray, Lord. Amen.